you have single-handedly changed our family because of mastermind because i felt safe enough and realized with your help realized that it's not just about the picking up of the toys and the back talk and the productive conversation scripts it's not about that it's about healing myself and becoming a better version of myself and showing up and being able to be that way for my entire family I really credit you with doing something that I literally have not been able to do with countless therapists and all the journaling and all the thinking and all the meditating and all the things. It was because of you. So thank you for helping heal what I thought was unhealable. You're listening to the Mastermind Parenting Podcast with Randy Rubenstein and special guest Near Ayal, episode 79. My name is Randy Rubenstein, and welcome to the Mastermind Parenting Podcast, where we believe when your thoughts grow, the conversations in your home flow. So a ping on your phone takes you out of a conversation with a friend. At the office, a colleague interrupts your work on a project. At home, screens intrude on time with your partner. Your goals don't get done, and it feels like someone or something is constantly pulling you away from what you really want to do. Why does it seem we're no longer in control of our attention or our lives? Nir Eyal wrote the book on how tech companies get people hooked. After years of teaching at Stanford, Eyal now reveals the Achilles heel of distraction in his new book, Indistractable. Eyal lays bare the secret to finally doing what you say you'll do. Eyal provides a practical plan for getting the forgetting the best of technology without letting it get the best of us. In Indistractable, he provides the recipe for mastering what he calls the skill of this century. A graduate and instructor in Stanford's Graduate School of Business, Nir Eyal has studied and taught behavioral design with and to industry leading experts and scientists. He writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business at nearandfar.com. So... Thanks for coming on the podcast. I oh, think my pleasure. This whole, like once I was like, yes, it is. Cause I just, here's my pre-released copy. Yes. Right here. I look, look at all those tabs and notes. I love it. That's my favorite kind of copies to see. I love it. Let me tell you something. And you guys sent me this last week. I read it in three days. Wow. That's, yeah. <laughs> thank you. I read it no, and it was, it was so good. It's so good. And when I read this, this, the intersection of psychology, technology, and business, yes. Like it was all my favorite things. <laughs> and I mean, including when, I, when you started talking about triggers mm. and the brain, and in my book, I talk about, I use the term distraction. Like there's so many commonalities that I, you just never know. I mean, I would never have looked at this book and thought this is going to have so many things in common with the book I wrote on parenting. So, right, right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so curious to hear what you thought about the section on parenting, on, on raising indistractable kids. Yeah, I thought it was great. And I think it's timely. And I mean, personally, I have three teenagers, so I have so many questions for you and I just want you to share all your goodness. And before we even started recording, I was telling Nir that my husband actually heard Nir on business radio and just happened to tell me, he said, I heard this guy and he was really an awesome speaker, so smart, so polished, you'd really like him. And then coincidentally, a week and a half later, 
your people got in touch with me and said you wanted to come on the podcast. And I was like, okay, this is meant to be. So I really want you to do most of the talking here because you've got so much goodness to share with us. And likewise. So it's interesting because I kind of have a, a, a two audiences, right? So I've got uh, the, the business folks who read Hooked and want to learn how to build habit-forming products. But then I've got also this audience of, of parents and uh, uh, husbands and wives who want better relationships with each other, better relationships with their kids. And so I've, I, I kind of have these multiple audiences. So yeah, fire away. Well, you hit me on multiple levels because obviously I'm interested as a mom with my three teenagers and technology is a big source of contention in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, as a human, I'm constantly trying to stay on task and not be so distractible. Mm -hmm. uh, and the business piece I'm super interested in too because I'm all about how do I get the people that come into my community hooked on my information and see that learning is fun because where I attack my process is behavior change, which as you know, like it's hard to make behavior change. You know, I'm, I'm, I constantly am learning for ways to reach the people in the easiest way possible and to get them hooked on my learning and then actually right. taking action. So yeah. This is, this is such a great place to start too, because I think, you know, before I wrote Indistractable, uh, as I do with every book idea I have, my first step is to read every other book on the topic because I don't want to write a book that's already been written, right? If somebody's done a great job with a topic and answered a question that I had uh, to my satisfaction, well, why do I need to write that book again? That's silly. So with Indistractable, I read every other book on this topic. You can see them here in this video feed, all these books that I've, I've read on the topic. And they basically all said the same thing. It's technology that's the problem. Technology is melting your brain. Technology is bad for you. Technology is this, technology that. Uh, it's all the big tech companies' fault. And I got sick of it because even when I tried to excise technology from my life, right? I got a, a flip phone on Alibaba uh, that's this like $12 you know, phone that only takes and receives calls and text messages, no apps. I got a, uh, a word processor here. I got this word processor from eBay that doesn't have any internet connection from the 1990s this thing was made. And uh, I sat down and I was like, okay, now I'm going to get my work done. Now I'm go not going to be distracted anymore because I don't have all this modern technology. And you know what? I still got distracted <laughs> because I'd say, oh, there's that book I've been meaning to read or let me just organize my desk for a quick sec or let me just take out the trash. And I kept getting distracted because I hadn't dealt with the real source of distraction. And this is the real problem. The real distraction that we have today is the distraction of thinking that technology is the problem. Mm -hmm. That before Facebook, nobody ever got distracted. Come on, that's ridiculous. Distraction is a really old problem. Socrates and Aristotle talked about it 2,500 years ago. They, they called it akrasia, which means the tendency to do things against our better interest. So this is not a new problem, but it does require some new solutions because the mediums have changed. The, the format has changed. But what I really wanted to do with this book was to dive deeper than the simple answers. We have so many simple answers about you know, the, 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 what's going on in the world these days, and there's no room for nuance. And I think we really miss some of that nuance because, you know, look, the answer to every complex question in life is always the same answer. It depends, mm -hmm. right? That it's, you need to dive in to really understand something, not just stick with these superficial analysis, uh, particularly when it comes to parenting, right? That uh, you know, all the media tells us is, is that technology is rotting our kids' brains. And you know what? The research doesn't show that this is true at all. 
Uh, there's really nuance here. Yeah, it's not good for some people in some situations, depending on what they do. But there's a lot of, of nuance there that we should get into before we make these sweeping generalizations. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's such a, it's easy to blame, mm -hmm. right? Yep. I mean, when you stay in a place of blame, then you don't have to take any personal responsibility. And it's kind of like you're off the hook. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, this is why I start that parenting section with uh, the, the uh, kind of a list of falsehoods that we parents love to believe. And I, I start with, and by the way, I'm, I'm the father of an 11 year old little girl. Um, and, and so I, I was guilty of this before I actually dove into the research. So one of the most uh, pervasive myths is this idea of the sugar high. Mm -hmm. And if kids have a lot of sugar, they just act crazy and they do terrible things and there's nothing controlling them because the sugar has got their brains. And uh, it turns out that study after study and meta studies of studies have all concluded there is no such thing as a sugar high, except, except on parents. <laughs> that parents, in fact, behave differently when they believe their kids have been given sugar, even when they were given a placebo. So they did these studies where they gave kids a, an inert substance that tasted sweet, probably some kind of artificial sweetener or something. And I'm sure they, they made sure that that had no uh, known effects on behavior. And then they told the parents that their kid had just had a bunch of sugar. So the parents believed the kid was having a sugar high and they wanted to just observe the parents. And while the kids didn't behave differently at all, they did nothing differently. They mm -hmm. found that parents who believed their kid had had more sugar and believed in the sugar high, this didn't work for parents who didn't believe in the sugar high, berated their kids, they followed them around. They said, Johnny, don't do this, don't do this. They constantly nagged them because they thought, ah, you see, this is why my kid is acting crazy. And so there's, there's all of these myths that we parents like to believe because like you said, it kind of takes us off the hook. And un unfortunately, many of us just stop at the superficial level that if I just take the phone away from my kid, if I just you know, uh, stop them from playing Fortnite, then that's it, the, the, the problem will be solved. And it turns out the problem is way, way deeper, uncomfortably deep for a lot of parents. It's funny that you bring up Fortnite. I like what you wrote about, and I don't know exactly, I mean, you can expand on how you put it, but like the kids have to be in the driver's seat. When we start putting all these restrictions on them, and really a lot of what I gathered you know, that you were talking about is having productive conversations. Don't just lecture and dictate and take away, right? Mm -hmm. Involve them in this decision-making process. This week has been a fortnightless week. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and it's been interesting to see how he's kind of noticed the withdrawals from it, the mm -hmm. boredom, like having to work harder to make conversation with friends or to hang out. I don't know, the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it brings up a lot of these issues. So, so one thing it's really important to know out there, because there's been a lot of misinformation about uh, screen time and the effect of screen time on kids' mental well-being. So just to be clear, there have been zero studies that show deleterious effects from two hours or less of extracurricular screen time. So if your kid is playing two hours or less of an age appropriate game or, or some kind of online activity, by the way, simple thing just right off the bat, don't let your kid use a service that the service makers tell you not to let your kid use before a certain age, right? So I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand 
why parents let their kids use Facebook and Instagram and all these social products when the makers themselves say, don't let your kid use this before 13, okay? Mm -hmm. That is the age, if not later, that kids should have access to this stuff in the first place, right? We don't want to give any medium. We have to wait till the child is ready. I'm not going to let my kid walk into a library even and just read any book. There's a lot of books out there that an 11-year-old is not ready for. So we have to make sure the content is appropriate. But assuming the content is appropriate, there is no study that links any deleterious effects to two hours or less of extracurricular screen time. Now, what about the excessive amounts? We do see studies that find that uh, when it comes to really excessive use, three, four, five hours a day of, of, uh, of extracurricular screen time, we do see some negative uh, correlations with, with uh, decreased sense of well-being. It's a very minor effect, but it is there. So it's something to be aware of. So we want to ask ourselves, why do our kids overuse? What, what's going on here? Is it the tech that's really hijacking our kids' brains or is there something else going on? So first thing that's helpful to understand is some historical perspective, that we have been having the same exact fights for generations, Randy. In my generation, the fights we were having were about Super Mario Brothers. And before that, it was the remote control because we only had, you know, one TV in the house. And before that, it was what channel on the radio. And before that, in previous generations, it was, you know, it just goes back on and on and on and on. There's always been this, 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 these disagreements around kids wanting autonomy and freedom from their parents to make their own choices. So if that has been an age-old struggle, at least in Western civilizations, by the way, we don't see this as much in pre-industrialized societies, but if this is always something that's coming up, we should dive deeper because this seems to be a persistent trend way before Fortnite, way before Facebook. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And what's really going on is that children are missing. They are deficient in this country in what I call psychological nutrients. Psychological nutrients comes from, this is my term for some very old research that's been out since the 1970s called self-determination theory by Desi and Ryan. This is the most widely studied uh, theory of human motivation. And self-determination theory says that for, for psychological well-being, we all need three things. We need competency, autonomy, and relatedness. Not just kids, but also adults. Competency, autonomy, and relatedness. So these are these three psychological nutrients, just like we need fat, carbohydrates, and protein, the three macronutrients nutrients for our bodies. We need these three psychological nutrients for our psychological well-being. So if we know that these things are necessary, what we also know is that when people are deficient in these psychological nutrients, this is called the needs displacement hypothesis, they go searching for them online if they can't find them offline. Mm. So think about kids' lives these days. I'm giving kind of a very short summary that, that you read already, but for the listeners around this chapter in my, or the section in my book around how to raise indistractable kids. And when we think about today's, the, the, the society with which kids are being raised today, you know, one thing that has correlated with uh, the rise of the smartphone is also the rise in standardized testing. It also occurred around 2006, 2007. Well, when we constantly test our kids with these standardized tests, there's a significant portion of kids who are told you are not competent, right? You are not good enough. And so where do they look for that sense of competency? Where, they can, where can they feel that they're good at something? Well, the gaming companies say, well, we're happy to provide you with that sense of competency. Just play Roblox or Minecraft, and now you feel competent. Look what you can do, right? right? Agency. There is data. There, uh, Peter Gray did these, some amazing work around how many 
rules are enforced upon our kids. The average American child has 10 times as many rules and restrictions as the average adult, twice as many as an incarcerated felon. There are only two places in society where we tell people legally what to do, where to go, what to think, who to be friends with, what to wear, what to eat all day long, and that's school and prison. And so are we surprised that our kids come home and are desperate for some sense of autonomy? We all need it for our psychological well-being. I mean, think how annoying it is when your boss micromanages you, right? It's really annoying. You want freedom, and so you rebel. And so it, what do the kids do? Well, in, in, in my generation, we would break things, right? We would vandalize. We would do all kinds of terrible things outdoors. Well, today, kids do it indoors. They look for a sense of autonomy through the games they play, right? So Fortnite gives you a sense of autonomy. You control this universe, and that feels good to your psyche. We need this. And again, if we don't get it on, offline, we get it online. And then finally, relatedness. Relatedness is this need to be understood by others and have un others understand us. Well, you know, there has been a crisis of play in this country. It used to be when I was growing up, when I was a kid, that the neighborhoods of this country were singing with the sounds of kids playing. You don't hear that anymore. There's this case a few months ago of, a, of parents getting arrested, two parents who have homeschooled kids, and their kids walked to a local park about a mile and a half away, and these parents were arrested for negligence, for letting their kids go to the park unsupervised. This is what we've come to in this country. We are so scared by the media that something is going to happen to our kids. They're going to be abducted, even though this is the safest time in American history to be a kid. It's never been safer. So that we do two things. We either keep them indoors, and then we're surprised they want to go online when we're jailing them up indoors, or we overschedule them. Right? We're, we're putting them in Kumon and swimming lessons and karate and Mandarin all day. And so they're constantly either supervised by some grown up or a coach. And so they're, they're, they don't have this ability to, to exercise competency and, and autonomy and relatedness because there is no free play. So are we surprised that they're looking for a place to relate to others, to connect with others? Fortnite, I think, is a terrific example. I don't know if you've ever played Fortnite with, with your kids. Most of what kids do on Fortnite is talk to each other. Yeah. Like we used to do on the telephone as teenagers, right? We'd get off the phone. <laughs> we would just be talking to each other, also seeking that sense of relatedness. So I don't doubt that technology clearly plays a role here, but that's the proximate cause. The root cause of why kids overuse technology is because they are not getting sufficient amounts of their psychological nutrients of competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And one final factor, we are a big problem, us parents. Because if I am checking my email account while I tell my kid to put away their phone and stop checking uh, Snapchat, I'm a hypocrite and they can see that. And we as parents need to learn how to become indistractable if we have any hope of teaching our kids how to become indistractable as well. My kids call us out on the hypocrisy. Uh, and we've put the parameters in place, but that's the big one. And I'll tell you, it's my youngest son who calls me out the most. And I wasn't even thinking about it. I remember when he was in fourth grade, I would pick him up from school. And on Tuesdays, I had a call every Tuesday. 
And so I was trying to be super mom, which I was like, oh, in this day and age with all this technology, I can do my call while I'm in the carpool line and it's all fine. And he said to me probably about a month in, he said, mom, I would rather you just get me a ride with someone else than mm. pick me up and be on the phone. Uh, and it was a big wake up call for me. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you my own story. So the reason I decided I have to write this book, uh, I had an afternoon with my daughter and we sat down together and we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. You know, make a paper airplane, you know, do all these different activities together. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question. I'll never forget it. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I don't know what she said, because just in that moment, I'd gotten some ping, ding, or ring on my phone, and I started checking my device. And I wasn't there. And she got the message loud and clear that my phone was more important than she was. So she left the room. She started playing some toy outside. And next thing I knew, I looked up. When I kind of became aware of what went on, she was, she was gone. She'd left. And so that was really like the turning point in my mind that, you know, look, I know how these products are designed from the inside. And I still think we can use these devices for good. There's a lot of good we can do to create healthy habits in users' lives. But we also need to become aware of when we overuse these things. I, I actually, an, a reader of my, an early reader of my book, uh, somebody who helped me edit it, said, oh, let me, let me tell you a story that happened in my house. After you told, after he read the story of my daughter and I, you know, where I asked her uh, from this book, what superpower would you want? He asked it the same question, what superpower would you want of his daughter? And she said she'd want the power to talk to animals. And he said, power to talk to animals? Huh, that's a funny superpower, why? And she said, so that when you and mommy are on your computers, I'll have someone to talk to. Mm. Oh God, it killed me. <laughs> but this I mean, is out of the mouths of babes. It's right. They feel it. They feel it. And we can do something about it. This is the big point of this message. We can take it two ways. We can either say we're, we can either be blamers or shamers. Okay. The blamers say, you see, it's the big tech companies. Facebook is my phone is doing it to me. Or some people say they're shamers. They say, oh, you know what? I, I have a short attention span. I have an addictive personality. There's something wrong with me. I must be broken. You see, this is evidence that I can't control myself. And neither of those answers are, are correct. For the vast majority of people, there are some exceptions, right? There are some pathologies. Some people are actually pathologically addicted. Some people really do have obsessive compulsive disorder. Very small percentage of the population, thankfully. But yes, some people do actually have a pathology. But for the vast majority of us, 95 to 99% of us, there's nothing wrong with us. And there's nothing wrong with these technologies. We just don't know how to put them in their place. And that's why I wrote this book. Well, just, just after reading it, it's already improved my life. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a super detailed person, so it never even occurred to me to go through and go through all the different apps and take off the notifications. Yeah. And just making that shift. And some of the other things that you've suggested, I'm like, I never thought of that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I never, I never thought of it. And so some of the little hacks that you offer in the book, I've been doing them and I've been talking to my kids about it. They were already, we already were really big on when you do homework, you know, not sleeping with screens in your room. And when yes. you do homework, putting it on, do not disturb. Right. 
right. putting all your devices on do not disturb when you do your homework. So I've always been big on that, but it never occurred to me to turn notifications off. So that mm -hmm. shift has been huge for me. And, and how long did it take you? I'm, I'm curious to, to do that, to go through your apps and change the notification settings. I'll tell you, I had already done Facebook a long time ago because right. I private Facebook groups for my business. So I, other than that, I really don't go on Facebook much, but so except for Facebook, every other notification was on. I will say it took me maybe seven minutes, seven minutes. And you've probably saved how many hours of distraction from, Oh, there's one little thing. Let me just open this quick app real quick. So the, the, the message here is not that this stuff is evil and bad and you, you know, you, you have to stop using it. No, no. All I'm saying is use it on your schedule not on the app makers. If you want to play Candy Crush, play Candy Crush. Do it, but do it at a set time of day. So on my calendar, every day, it says at 8 p.m., that's my time for social media. I love social media. It's great, but I don't want to use it every time these goddamn app makers ping and ding me. Right. Turn them off. <laughs> they right. can wait right. and use it at a time in your schedule that's good for you so that you have time. You know, th th there's this great quote in the book. I can't remember who said it, unfortunately, but the quote is, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. Mm -hmm. So playing Candy Crush or checking your work email or doing whatever it is you enjoy doing with your phone is wonderful, but do it at the time of day or night that you want to do it. Not every time they get one of these pings and dings. Well, I think that segues into a part of your book that really captivated me and is, is, is in super alignment with what I teach, hmm. which is the part that you wrote about why time management is pain management. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and what I wanted to say is, is the pings and dings and notifications why it has affected my life so much in this short amount of time since I took them off is I know that I shouldn't be going on every when I see a little red bubble. Mm -hmm. However, the time management and pain management, that really rings true for me because when I'm sitting down to do a task and I, I saw that Gretchen Rubin wrote, wrote um, something really nice about your book and I love her and I'm a rebel tendency. I love her four tendencies. Me too. <laughs> You're a rebel tendency. I'm a rebel as well. Yeah. yeah. So as a rebel tendency, like I defy all expectations. Including and, right. Right. And so when I'm sitting down to do something that I don't necessarily want to do, but I need to do, and um, I get one of those little red bubbles, it's so difficult for me not to give in to that moment of like a little pleasure hit just yeah. a tiny it, it just it relieves that pain of I don't want to do this thing I don't want to do this yes. thing and so it's so easy for me to procrastinate and give in to the red bubble and so if you could talk a little bit more about that time management and pain management sure sure you know it's, it, so in order to understand why we don't do the things we know we should do, right? In general, right? So, so, so let's, let's back up a little bit. What, what do we mean when we use this term distraction? What, do we, what does that term actually even mean? To understand what distraction is, you have to know what the opposite of distraction is. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Mm -hmm. Both traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice they both end in the same five letter word, action distraction, traction, both end in the word action, reminding us these are things we do, not things that happen to us. So traction 
is any action you take that pulls you forward, right? The things that you do with intent, things that you want to do with your time. Anything else that is not traction is a distraction. So you've got traction and you've got distraction. Now, what moves us to either traction or distraction are two things. All our behavior is spurred by either an external trigger or an internal trigger. External triggers are these things in our environment, the pings, dings, rings, and things that prompt us to either traction or distraction. If you get a notification on your phone and it says, hey, time to hit the gym, terrific, that's traction. That's moving you towards what you planned to do with your time. However, if you get a notification on your phone, like I did when I was with my daughter and I wanted to play with her, and now it took me to distraction because that's something I did not want to do. I did not want to be checking my phone at that time. I wanted to be fully present with this person I love very much. Now that moved me towards distraction. So external triggers are a big part of how we make sure we, we get more traction and less distraction. But the most important part of this entire model of how do we become indistractable, how do we become the kind of people who do what we say we're going to do, is to master our internal triggers. Internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states that again, prompt us to either traction or distraction. Now, to understand why we get distracted, we have to understand why we do anything. The reason we do anything, the, the source of motivation is not what most people think it is. Most people think if I say, okay, what, what, what's the nature of motivation? Why do we do things? Why do we act? Why do we do any behavior? Most people will tell you some version of carrots and sticks. This is called Freud's pleasure principle, that everything we do is in the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, right? Seems like common sense. Except neurologically speaking, it's not true. We do not do things because of the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Everything we do, everything we do, is done out of a desire to escape discomfort. Mm -hmm. That's it. Even the pursuit of pleasure, wanting to feel something good, is in fact uncomfortable. Craving, wanting, desire. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically speaking, that's exactly what's going on. The brain spurs us to action by creating psychological discomfort. So when you're feeling uh, lonely, you check Facebook. When you're uncertain, you Google. When you're bored, you check the news. You look at Reddit, Pinterest, sports scores. All of these things cater to uncomfortable emotional states. So that means if all behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. That I can teach you every productivity tactic there is out there. None of them will work unless you master your internal triggers. If you can't figure out what it is that you're escaping, let me tell you, the reason I started using my phone when I was with my daughter was not because of my phone. There was stuff going on inside me. The icky sticky truth is that I didn't want to deal with. Mm -hmm. And my escape from that uncomfortable sensation, maybe it was too much time with my daughter. Maybe it was the stress I was experiencing in my business. I had to be very honest with myself and come clean with why exactly I couldn't sit for 10 minutes without getting distracted. Mm -hmm. and it was because of this principle that distraction starts from within. So that has to be where we start. And I tell this to people all the time. I say, we've been sold a bill of goods in the, we, we just, we want our kids to be happy. We want to be happy. When a big part of life is about experiencing discomfort, 
Oh, thank you, Randy. This is so perfect. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. We, you know, this is what drives me up the wall when it comes to the self-help and personal productivity business, the industrial complex of selling more books and gurus is that, you know, they tell us that if we're not happy, if we're not satisfied, we're not normal. Right. Nothing could be further from the truth that evolutionarily speaking, we are designed for dissatisfaction. And it hurts us when we believe, oh, I'm not happy all the time. Something's wrong with me. No, you are designed that way. If there was ever a branch of homo sapiens who were satisfied and said, no, I'm good, I'm happy, our branch of homo sapiens probably killed and ate them. Right. <laughs> because satisfaction is not evolutionarily beneficial. So what does this mean? One, it means we need to acknowledge the fact that we are designed to be perpetually perturbed. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that because it's that same sense of restlessness that helps us achieve things. Look, meditation is a very effective technique, but if all you do is meditate all day and don't actually fix problems in the world, well, then nothing changes. We need to also act, right? And so we need these internal triggers. We can leverage them to help us do great things in the world, but we also need to make sure we don't let them get the best of us. So we only have two choices, right? One, we need to acknowledge first and foremost that this is totally normal. And there's, I talk about these lists of cognitive biases that make us this way. But so the first thing we can do is we can learn tactics to cope with that discomfort. We can reimagine the trigger, we can reimagine the task, and we can reimagine our temperament. And I give you tactics for how to do all that. So that's one thing you can do is to reimagine the internal trigger itself, to think of it differently so that you can cope with discomfort. However, many things we can change we can change the source of that discomfort. And so we don't want to shortchange ourselves and just say, oh, well, let's just meditate and be mindful all day because some things we actually need to get up off our butts, stop meditating and change the world and make sure that we don't have this constant source of internal triggers that leads to distraction. So that's why there's a whole section in the book about how to have indistractable relationships by dealing with some of these deeper issues, how to have an indistractable workplace. One of the most common sources of these painful internal triggers is crappy workplace culture that keeps people constantly on edge because they're scared. And what do people do when they're scared and fearful and anxious and uncertain? They call meetings, they send emails because there's nothing else they can do. That's what they do for a sense of agency and control. They get themselves distracted and everybody else distracted because they're looking for psychological escape. Here, here. <laughs> I mean, the, the and I've already shared this with my son, with my older son. I loved surfing the urge. Mm. I loved when you talked about surfing the urge because what I talk about a lot of times is when you learn to experience discomfort, what you find is it usually takes somewhere around 90 seconds for a negative emotion to move through your body. Right. But we just don't typically know how to just feel it notice it and allow it. It's very uncomfortable to even think about how to deal with it. So I loved how you explained surfing the urge. Can you go yeah. into that a little bit? And I use this literally every day. Uh, this is a technique. I didn't invent this technique. This actually comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a very well-studied uh, set of technique for coping with discomfort. And so there, back when I talked about, you know, these two things that you can do, you can either change the source of the discomfort or you can learn techniques to cope with the discomfort for sources you can't change. So, you know, feeling discomfort is perfectly normal, perfectly human. How can we deal with it in a healthier manner? So if I experience a temptation to do something I don't want to do, right? Temptation towards 
distraction as opposed to traction. Uh, for example, let me give you a real life example. So writing for me is hard. <laughs> I've written two books. It never got easy. It never became an effortless habit, right? It's a routine, but it's not a habit because writing is really hard work. And every day when I sit down to write, I'm constantly tempted to, let me just Google something real quick. Or let me just check email for a second, right? And so instead of giving into that distraction, what I do is to first acknowledge that sensation. Okay, this is totally normal. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling bored, whatever it might be. Let me just sit with that for a minute. Let me get curious about it. Most people get contemptuous about it. They say, oh, you see, I'm messed up. I have a short attention span. There's something wrong with me, right? They approach it with contempt as opposed to with curiosity. And then what I try and do is I use technology to help me get control over technology. So I'll say something like, oh, you know, I'll set my timer on my phone and say, set the timer for 10 minutes. This is called the 10 minute rule. Again, I didn't invent it. It comes out of acceptance and commitment therapy. And in those 10 minutes, I can either get back to what I was doing, the thing that was on my schedule that I was going to do with my time, or I can just sit and feel that sensation for a little bit and use this technique that you mentioned called surfing the urge, where all I need to do is just pay attention to that sensation, whether it's boredom, anxiety, just get curious about it. Don't judge yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Just get curious. And in those 10 minutes, what 99% of the time happens is that by just surfing the urge, by just acknowledging, okay, I'm feeling a little bored right now. This is an uncomfortable emotional state. It's simply an internal trigger, which crests and passes. And just feeling that sensation, by the time that 10 minute timer is up, I'm back to work, right? But if, you know, on occasion, I do this by the way with food. I've struggled with food my entire life. I, you know, over the, only the past few years, I, I've got it under control and I'm in the best shape of my life since I've started writing this book. But I was clinically obese at one point in my life. And I use today the same, very same technique when I see, oh, there's a dessert I really want. I can have that dessert in 10 minutes of mm. surfing the urge. I feel like that piece is hard for people to conceptualize and really get. And it, you only get it once you start doing it. Mm -hmm. And you see, you know, and I think this probably ties into motivation. Um, once you see the effects and the results of surfing the urge, I think that helps you to buy in and then want to try it more and more and more. Wouldn't you? Right. Your... Yeah. Yeah. And it's just one of many, many techniques. I mean, the most important part of the book, whether you buy the book or not, is the strategy. Tactics are what you do. Strategy is why you do it. And so, you know, what I want to really paint, into, the, the picture I want to paint into people's minds is this idea of traction versus distraction, internal triggers and external triggers. If you understand that that is what guides your behavior in life, everything you do, whether it's traction or distraction, you can come up with your own tactics. Now, I give you lots and lots and lots of tactics and all kinds of, kinds of things that you can do to make it super concrete, but you can also develop your own tactics. That idea here is to come up with your own solutions to your own problems, right? Nobody's gonna solve these kind of problems for you. I can, I can lead you to water, but I can't make you drink. The, the idea here is that you will also continue to get distracted. I still get distracted from time to time. Becoming indistractable does not mean you never get distracted, okay? Becoming indistractable means you are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they will do. Do I still get distracted? Of course, at least once a day, something will distract me. But here's the kicker. I never get distracted by the same thing twice, right? There's that saying that insanity is defined as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. 
why do we like idiots keep getting distracted day in and day out complaining that it's the big tech companies doing it to us or our bosses or this or that or whatever excuse you want to put in without doing something about it well for most people they don't have this picture in their mind that they can use to say oh i i gave into my internal trigger oh i didn't make time for traction or oh i know what it was i didn't hack back the external trigger or i should have prevented the distraction with a pact it's those four steps and there's just four of them that we use to become indistractable. I thought, I think that it's a very empowering book. Thank you. I really do. And I feel like it is the opposite of victimhood. And this, I think I hear a lot of parents who feel powerless when it comes to technology, when it comes to winning the war on technology mm -hmm. with their kids and they feel at a loss. And they're thinking the tech giants are just smarter than them and there's nothing they can do. And then they don't want their kids to feel left out because they don't have Fortnite to talk about with their friends. Uh, and I felt like this really is the opposite of victim energy. The book mm -hmm. is really opposite. It really empowers you to not, not rid yourself of technology, to use technology for good and to do it on your terms and to have open, productive conversations, empowering conversations with your kids so you can be on the same team and you can stop fighting about it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and just as we have a final thought and we wrap up, mm -hmm. I would love to know if, if you could share your biggest piece of advice for parents who feel like they are powerless and they're losing the war against technology with their kids, right. um, what's your p biggest piece of advice for them? that they are not powerless, that we have cons we've had shoved down our throats this narrative that these companies are doing it to us, doing it to our kids. And the reason is really ironic if you think about it, because where do people get this information from? They get it from news outlets. And how do news outlets make money exactly? They run ads. And those ads are sold to advertisers in exchange for your attention. And what was the business model again of Facebook? Oh yeah, it's the same exact business model. In fact, the traditional news media that hates on technology is their competition. Right. They have an incentive to tell you how terrible these technologies are. So be very careful about these, these uh, headlines that get a lot of clicks, right? They get a lot of shares. Because fear-mongering works, we have what's called a negativity bias. We love getting scared about this kind of stuff and entering into a moral panic about this kind of stuff, but it just ain't true. As someone who spent five years looking at the research, uh, the, the research is just not there. The one thing that is unequivocal, however, is that when we believe that we are powerless, it becomes so. And there are studies done on alcoholics, okay? And of course, alcohol is much more addictive than, than video games or Facebook or Fortnite or any of this stuff. You know, we're not freebasing Facebook here. We're not injecting Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. uh, alcohol enters the bloodstream, passes through the blood-brain barrier, a lot more addictive when it comes to a substance we ingest versus some kind of behavior on a smartphone at the end of the day. But studies find that the number one determinant of whether an alcoholic can stay in recovery after rehab is not their level of physical dependency, has nothing to do with how much alcohol is in their system or was in their system. The number one determinant is their belief in their own power to change. Mm. 
So when we give these tech companies the power to believe that they are hijacking our brains, when we give into this narrative that it's addictive, that it's doing this to us, we are making it true. This is called learned helplessness. And people stop trying. So, oh, it's the algorithms. Those geniuses in, in uh, Silicon Valley, they're just doing it to my kids. What are we going to do? Nothing. <laughs> and that's what they do. They don't make any effort. And it turns out it's not that hard. We just got to do something. And these steps of mastering your internal trigger, making time for traction, hacking back the external triggers, and preventing distraction with PACT are not that hard. Anyone can do them with just a little bit of work. And so we, that's the message I really want to leave you with is that, you know, the superpower, if you were to ask me today, what superpower I would want, the superpower I would want is the power to become indistractable. And, and that's why I do the work I do. I love it. I love it. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you. My pleasure. It's a, it's a great honor to be here. Thank you. And thanks for being on the podcast. I know Absolutely. my, I know my listeners are going to love it. <laughs> Thank right. you. All right. Bye-bye. So if people want to find out more, can you let them know how they can find you? Sure. So my blog is nearandfar.com. My first name is Near. So Near and Far. Near spelled like my first name, N-I-R, uh, is my blog. And then if you want specific information about the book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, you can go to indistractable.com. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E. So indistractable. Dot com. Uh, there you will find all kinds of free resources, whether you buy the book or not, all kinds of free things you can download, like an 80-page workbook, uh, whether you buy the book or not. There's also a video course, all kinds of stuff there uh, that will help you on your journey to become indistractable. Perfect. And I will have all that linked in the show notes as well. And my last, last, last question is, is there going to be an Audible book coming out? There is. In fact, it's available right now on Audible. Are, is it your voice? It is my voice, yes. Okay good. Yeah. okay, good. Good, good, good. Okay, thanks again for being here. Have you read my book, The Parent Gap? Have you listened to my book, The Parent Gap? I doubt you've listened because my publisher hasn't released it yet on Audible. However, I have the audio version of The Parent Gap that I would love to send to you. You can download it at mastermindparenting.com forward slash book. That's mastermindparenting.com forward slash book for your free audio version of The Parent Gap. You're welcome. Bye.